0: Welcome back to the Tapes Archive Podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. Please listen to episode 000, an introduction for the full backstory about this podcast series. On this episode, we bring you the piano man himself, Billy Joel. At the time of this interview in 1994, Joel was 44 and touring in support of River of Dreams, which turned out to be his last studio album. In the interview, Joel talks about a lot of topics including what it takes to have a long music career, his musical heroes, and an interesting story about his experience performing at the Grammys, and then the Grammys asking him to cut his song short. By the end of the interview, Billy talks so much about himself that he jokingly states, I'm pretty Billy Joel out. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line.
1: You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared them to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And by God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line, the true story of Tony Karitsis.
0: This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. We
2: haven't to talk to you the last couple of tours, so uh, it's... It really is nice to hear from you. I started by asking you about the new record for a bit. A lot of River of Dreams seems to say that we've given ourselves more and more material things, but less and less of substance. Is that, is that one of the messages that you want to get across?
1: Well, that's a conclusion I came to. I don't know if I had actually meant that to be any kind of encoded message or anything. There is a crisis of faith in the character here, and there is a search for some kind of renewal of faith a certain spirituality is involved, not in a religious sense, philosophical sense. There's a few realizations on the the journey in this song cycle, one of them being, you know, there is no justice. And I suppose one of them being that material things do not ultimately bring happiness. Is that a lesson that it took a while to learn, do you think, for you? Well, it's something I've always suspected anyway. uh, I was not someone who was on, uh, you know the road of life to to try to make gobs of money and and buy things. Uh, That was, you know, that's not what I set out to do. Um, However, I found that there are people who do think like that, and they don't care how they get get it as long as they can get it. And those people uh, frighten me. this is a particularly reflective record, and
2: I was trying to relate it to my own life. And I think that the older I get, and I'm I'm 35, uh, the more I think that people aren't really interested in being reflective, uh, because it's
1: too scary. What do you think about that, dude? I think that's definitely a possibility, especially at this point in my life. I have been fortunate enough to know what I was going to do at a very early age. I think when I was 14, I knew what I was going to do for my life. Going to be a musician. That decision. I didn't even know if it was a decision. I think it's understanding that that's what you are. It's not really a choice that you make. Uh, I, I, I always found myself in a situation where there was no choice to make, there was only one, one thing to do, and that's, that was be what I was. In a way, there are parallels, I think, to people who refer to their own sexuality, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual. It's not something you necessarily choose. You either are or you're not. I think there's a lot of similarities with being an artist. You either are or you're not. And I've, I've had this question posed to me many times at seminars that I've done by students who say, gee, I have a lot of doubts about whether I should really, you know, live this kind of life or if I should commit myself to it. And I said, well, you know what? If you have too many doubts, then you shouldn't do it. I like to encourage artists because they're going to, they're going to face a lot of discouragement. So I do everything I can to encourage them. But if someone doesn't feel in their soul that they're capable of living that kind of life. This is a long answer. Um, that's okay. But I, I was fortunate enough to know when I was 14, and, I, and, and that's the road I followed, and it, it ultimately uh, was very, you know, uh, lucrative for me. Not that I set out to do that. What, what, what I wanted to do was to make, be able to make a living at it. That's the initial aspect of, of being a professional artist. You know, once that realization came Everything else after that is just a matter of numbers and uh, you know symbols of things. Were you? Did you ever say it out loud when you were 14? I am going to be
2: an entertainer. I'm going to be a professional musician. I said I want to make a living
1: as a musician. And what? what how was that greeted? Uh, at home it was fine. Uh, actually, my father had uh, already uh, divorced my mother and gone back to Europe quite a few years prior to that. Uh, my mother was, was very supportive. She was kind of the beatnik lady on the block. And uh, we we were, we were different than everybody on the block anyway because we were a, a broken home. Everybody else was uh, probably dysfunctional, but not broken. Yeah.
2: I'm thinking more in terms of like, because I, I grew up on Long Island also, and I'm uh, thinking to myself, if I had said at 14 years old whatever I wanted to be at the time, that I wanted to be a musician or a ball player or whatever, I just have a feeling that that my friends would have, you know, just ripped it apart, you know, that that I couldn't have, you know, that you couldn't say something like that out
1: loud. Yeah, well, that happened with a lot of people that I knew, Mm -hmm. who weren't necessarily my friends, they were acquaintances, or they were, you know, school chums, uh, or people in in the crowd that I was hanging out with. You know, there was supposed to be a a particular circumscribed way of life that you're supposed to live. In Levittown, I grew up in the prototypical housing (laughs) development. And, you know, it's not like I went around and said to people, I'm going to be a musician. I just knew. I knew it then. Uh, I I, I knew it when I started to meet girls. Uh, I met more girls by playing the piano and not trying to have a a clever pickup line. And I realized the power of this stuff. That's how I I met every girl I ever knew from playing the piano, not not from being a, a football star or having a great, you know, haircut did you ever have any doubts about my that, ultimate success? Yeah, that this was going to happen for you. Yes, I did. I, I, I had doubts as to whether I was going to be able to, you know, pay the bills. Uh-huh. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I've been around for a long time as a, as a successful recording artist. A lot of people forget I started out at the bottom and I spent most of my life without money. Most of my life I was poor. And I had doubts that I would be able because I had other jobs when I was a musician. I was a painter, and a, uh, a landscaper, and I worked in a gas station, a short order cook. I even wrote rock criticism. These were always like day gigs, uh-huh. you know, which, which would augment uh, the money I was making on the night gig. And like I said, the, 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 when I realized I could pay the rent and have money left over for food from being a musician, that was one of the highlights of my life. So, you know, up until that point, I did have doubts that I was going to be able to sustain myself. But the success, that came, that's a whole other ball of wax. That's something I never expected. The kind of success and the longevity I've had, I never expected that at all. I assumed I would be a musician in one form or another. I never assumed I would be a rock star at this point in my life
2: one more question about this did did you know always know that you had the talent to do this I think that that generally kids come up these days and I don't think they realize how much talent it takes to sustain a career did you know that you were as good as you are
1: I don't know if it's a matter if I knew if it was good or not I knew I was going to give it everything I had I knew that um, I wasn't going to go down without a fight Uh, but I thought that I had uh, something in my heart that was not going to allow me to be uh, anything other than a musician. So it was almost like I had no choice. And and it wasn't really a matter of thinking how good I was because no matter how good I think I've done something, I'm still not satisfied with. My heroes are Beethoven and Mozart and Chopin and Debussy. You know, those guys were good. Yeah, they're still hanging around. You're like yeah. the Beatles. Those guys were good.
2: Yeah. You, know? you have uh, shades of gray. Springsteen wrote the line, God have mercy on the man who doubts what he's sure of. Is this what we have to look forward to? Um,
1: well, it seems to be happening to a lot of people at this age. Yeah. And I think that's healthy. Because, God forbid, we should carry our youthful arrogance throughout our lives, um, you know, and never leave room for any kind of uh, doubt, of, of, you know, about the positions we take. I mean, wouldn't it be a very walled and guarded world we live in?
2: I mean, I just think of ignorance as bliss,
1: you know. Well, I think there is, uh, for me anyway, there's a constant quest for knowledge. And the more knowledge I get... Uh, the more I want, the more I realize I don't have. So to me, that's healthy. You know, all my idealism is is intact with certain basic truths, but everything else has become somewhat blurry. It's not a matter of you know my vision going in, in my 40s. It's it's a matter of having been you know, trounced somewhat by life. Even with all my success, I have had some tragedies happen. And uh, you know things that people may find difficult to believe. Uh, they were just on a bigger scale. Uh, you know when I was, when I found out that I was in debt, it was a huge debt. But you know I don't want n- lest anyone think they sh- they're supposed to cry and shed tears for me. You know don't worry about it. I'm fine. I'm financially sound. I, I've I've uh, I've proven to me, which is the most important thing, that I can start from square one again if I have to. And I've almost made up for ten years of of total larceny that was practiced on me by someone else. I, you know, I, I've just about gone back to where I should be.
2: This is sort of an appropriate... I, I guess you could ask this question of anybody, but it seems more appropriate of you. I mean, knowing what you've gone through and, and what you've achieved also, would you do this again? I mean, would you live your life exactly the same? No, no, I would not live
1: my life exactly the same. I have regrets. I've learned from my mistakes. I would not change musically what I've done because that was a very natural organic evolution and I, I can only be the product of what I've been and I'm happy to be what I am as an artist right now. Uh, I couldn't go back and write the same stuff knowing what I know now but then again I couldn't have written back then what I can write now so I wouldn't change the artistic bit. I would change um, how my business was run. I would change my uh you know a certain amount of naive, 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 naivete, naiv yeah. naivete, naivete. Oh, yeah. okay. Did you take French or something? You know how to say these things?
2: Um, yeah, actually, I did. Okay. <laughs> uh, That's how good my five years of high school French was. I now know how to say naivete and not much else. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I would, that I would have, I would have liked to have changed, only because I have responsibilities as a parent. That uh, you know, I. I I should have looked out for more, you know, as as a partner in a marriage and as a parent, I I allowed a certain amount of arson to be practiced on me, which ultimately would have hurt my my child and and my wife. And that, you know, I don't, I can't sit here and go, oh no, I would do the same thing again. Because if anything happened to me in the last five years, actually, since 1980, well, let's see, I had the kid in 85, and anything happened to me since then, um, while, I was being managed by this person. My kid would be in, in great, uh, great trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, awful. It would be an awful scenario. My wife and my child would have you know, found themselves you know, in terrible difficulty. I'll never forgive that guy for that. It's not me so much. It's what he almost... You know, where, we, where my family almost ended up. And other than that, it's, uh, yeah, sure, there's regrets. There's things I would do differently. Uh, if I've ever inadvertently hurt someone, and I realize that I probably have done that in my lifetime, I would have liked to have gone back and, and, and made amends.
2: You, you have a quote uh, that I really and like. And I
1: wouldn't have written that song in French. Because <laughs> I don't know how to speak French. So who the hell was
2: I? <laughs> yeah. Well, you were busy learning how to be an entertainer and world famous, and I was sitting there in high school French, you know, so what can I say? Um, You have this great quote about how um, you and Christy don't fly around the house on rock star and supermodel wings, but you also live a life that most people both envy and can't relate to. Do you think that, that your live performances help humanize you, that it shows
1: off your work ethic? I think, well, yeah, the fact that I'm out there working, is something that may demythify that you know that uh, I'm someone who is almost a cartoon to an extent. I think even more than that, I do these seminars where I answer questions. Uh, and part of the reason I do these seminars is to help to demythify the whole rock star as cartoon idea. There is a lot of technical aspects to my work. There's a lot of uh, hands-on craft, which is given short shrift by a great deal of the intellectual community because everything that... I don't, know, I, I don't know whether it's assumed all of this stuff is supposed to be so spontaneous that nobody actually works. And what I like to do is show and explain and define for people, uh, especially people who are interested in going into this line of work, just how much work is involved and all the skills you'll need to know and how business is conducted and uh, the tools you should have. And... Um, how much effort is involved? So let no one have any delusions. Because I would have liked the opportunity to have asked the Beatles or Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones when I was starting out, how do you do this stuff? You know, how do I, how do, I do this? How do I write that? How do I record this? How do I play that? Blah, 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 blah. And I've got a lot of information up in my head. I can actually help somebody. I mean, a guy, I'm not saying a guy like Eddie Better wants to know how I write my music. But he may want to know how he can still be a, a viable musician in 30 years. There's always that the glamour of die young, leave a, leave a good-looking corpse. Right. Burn out, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. Not, you know, not, not drag on too long. I, I find success breeds a certain resentment if it's gone on for too long. But an artist really has an entire life to live, not just a short burst of flame and then, and then you're gone. Not if you're an artist of substance.
2: But is there a simple answer to that? How you sustain a 30-year career?
1: Well, I have my ways of explaining how what I perceive to be the reason for my longevity. That is, it's a dedication to, to a certain amount of quality. And a lot of it is just hard work. And it's sometimes at the risk of personal life. But You know, there, there's, there's a balance you have to have. Some artists give 100% of every day of their lives to their art and suffer as human beings because of that, because they have no personal life. Uh, and, in, in, and in a sense, lose track of their own humanity by not having a personal life. So there's a balance you've got to have, too. Otherwise, you know, you become an alcoholic or a drug addict or a work addict, and, and uh, you know, you probably suffer from some kind of depression from, from lack of being a human being.
2: Did this just come naturally to you? I mean, do, did you just know that, again, um or, or was it something that you discovered
1: over time? It's something I discovered over time. It was, it was all trial and error. I had no idea how to do what I'm doing. Nobody wrote the book on it. You know, you can read biographies about stars, film stars, television stars, musical stars. It's all really written to sell books. None of it is really written for the, the, the student of the particular art that these people are following. You know, except, you read a biography of Beethoven, you can get a little insight into what he was like by somebody who's done a lot of research on Beethoven explaining how he wrote a certain symphony, what he did a certain day, what kind of mood he was in. Those things are important. Right? Not so much, I don't know, his relationship with the queen on Plinette or whatever the hell it was.
2: You know what I mean? Yeah. Tell me about uh, your Grammy comment about valuable advertising time is ticking by. That must have obviously been about because of Sinatra, right?
1: Well, the thought was there before the thing happened with Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. You know, at the rehearsals the day prior to the Grammys, we were asked to cut down the length of the song for TV time. I mean, they said, you know, we'd like you to get rid of 30 seconds. I said, didn't you guys just give me, like, a Grammy nomination for the greatest song in the world ever written this year, and now you're telling me it's 30 seconds too long? I said, okay, now it's TV. So you got, anything you do on TV, you have to understand the, the TV mentality. Here's the difference between the TV business and the music business. In the music business, they lie to you, but they really don't expect you to believe them. In the television business, they lie to you, and they actually expect you to believe what they're telling you. I don't know whether it's because they're all buttoned up and it's more corporate, whatever, but they're full of crap. And essentially... The nature of the Grammys is like any other TV show. It's cooked up by producers in order to sell advertising time to big money advertisers. So they can charge a lot of money for the advertising time and get big ratings. The complaint about the Grammys always is, well, why don't the the lesser known, more deserving musicians get recognized? Why aren't they uh, given a Grammy? Why? Because the advertisers don't know their names. You know, they want to hear Billy Joel, Whitney Houston, Sting, Eric Clapton. They want all those mainstream artists so they can sell their advertising. And that's what the Grammys are all about. That's essentially what it is. And so the timing was just perfect Uh after they did that to Sinatra to to make that comment. Well, at the rehearsal I had actually stopped, you know, I I usually do take a break in the middle of that song and just, I kind of let it hang for a little bit. Now, they got all nervous about that when I did it at rehearsal. They said, oh, it's adding more time to it. We, We already chopped time off the front, chopped time off the ending. So I was, I thought it was very important that I hold on to that little hole in the middle of the song. Just that breath. Because it's a statement just to take a breath on TV. And I stretched it out after they did that to Sinatra as kind of a dare. Like, okay, now cut me off in the middle of my Grammy-nominated Song of the Year, Record of the Year, Album of the Year, top book of the Year. You know, if, if, if those things were worth anything, and I didn't win anything that night, I, you know, as I suspected, I probably wouldn't. Because I don't think anybody goes in there thinking they're going to win. As I expected, I said, let me just take this moment and see if this Grammy really means anything. Because if they cut the song off, I think they would have been kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Because they already did it to Sinatra.
2: And did they react to what you said?
1: Uh, I didn't really talk to them. after. <laughs> I just went back to my seat. I, I talked a little bit to Sting and Garth Brooks, and Tony Bennett. It was fun to meet all the musicians. That's the, the, the most fun part of that, is you get all these musicians who rarely ever get to get together like that. And we just, you know, just trade stories. And, you know, it's kind of a
2: community. Did you think when they were telling you to cut 30 seconds of it, about that line in The Entertainer,
1: it was a beautiful song, but it ran too long? I always think about it. Okay. That. <laughs> I mean, it happens with every single that comes out. As a matter of fact, I've, I've kind of given up resenting it because I understand essentially when they put a single out what they're trying to do is advertise the album anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh Just essentially I don't sell singles like somebody like Snoop Doggy Dogg does. That guy sells singles. Right. Mariah Carey she sells singles. I'm an album artist. I'm kind of an anachronism. So if that's the way you're going to sell my album you know take the single chop it down and, and in a way I understand it that, that it's created an image which is you know Maybe not favorable to me. Uh, yeah, I am. I am not the sub substance of my singles. They don't really represent the bulk of my work. They're just one little piece of it. Uh, and taken out of the context of the album that it was written in, um, it may be a song that a lot. You know, for as many people that like it, there may be just as many or more people that don't like it, and decide to judge Billy Joel on that. And I understand that. Uh, I understand the, the problems people may have with somebody who's had these successful singles but who have never ever been motivated to go out and actually listen to an album because
2: that's really where all the work is the first thing that I think about when I think of you is that you're a songwriter I mean even though you know, your concerts are just uh, you know, pretty stunning as far as the energy levels um, and I have my own list of songs that you've written that I think man this guy's really nailed it this time and I, I'm wondering if my list is even close to yours do you have a, a list of like your five five best songs you think you've written the five
1: best songs that I think I've written, usually I I can't be objective. They're, it's totally subjective, and it usually has to do with the newer work because I'm closer to it. it. It would always be, the I'd say it was the last five songs I wrote. I mean, if you backed up five songs from the end of The River of Dreams, those would be my five favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that famous last words. I really like that a lot. And 2,000 years, I don't know how crazy I am about that one. That's a tad ambitious I don't know if I succeeded on that. It was a reach. You know, I'll sum up all of the history of mankind in these three verses. <laughs> that's a little bit of a reach. What else did I like? There's another song I like. The Lullaby, I think, is a beautiful song. That is a beautiful song.
2: I have a two-year-old, so I really relate to that. A two-year-old girl. And I think that's a beautiful song. So. Yeah, I,
1: I, uh, I actually moved myself. I like when that happens.
2: Yeah, so, so are there other
1: times that that happens? Yeah, there's a song called And So It Goes on the Stormfront album where the same thing kind of happened. These little Kurt Vile songs like uh, Vienna, I like a lot. Summer Highland Falls, Turnstiles, I like a lot. I guess they, those could be in the top five. Yeah,
2: that's, that's a good list. N- n- none of them were on my list, but that's, <laughs> that's all right. The last time you were here, uh, people say that you uh, went out to the Slippery Noodle Inn and jammed for a couple of hours. Yeah. And I'm wondering how
1: after that performance, how do you do that? Well, sometimes you're in the mood. I didn't realize that there were still places where you could see a great blues band like that. I thought they disappeared. And in Indianapolis, uh, there it was. This little place packed full of people, late at night. And this anonymous group of musicians, to me anyway, were playing this great blues. I said, I've got to get in on this. This is what it's all about. This is where rock and roll began. Like on a Friday night, and people who had worked all week had to go out and shake off the blues, and they did it by you know by by listening to the blues and rocking and rolling. It. I like to jump in with both feet. Do
2: that. I think there are guys who just hole up in the hotels because they're afraid of dealing with the public. You're
1: not like that at all. I oh no, I, no. I went actually for a nice walk today in Milwaukee. First thing I did, I got up and walked around. Actually, I was surprised there weren't more people. This this downtown Milwaukee's kind of dead. Yeah. Uh, which is too bad. There's a lot of nice old architecture in this city, mm-hmm. and I hope that they preserve it. But uh, no, I go out. I'm not Michael Jackson, somebody who's you know got to hide away from the world or something. No, no, I, I, I go out and throw myself into it. And the only, you know, the only time I really get in trouble is if I stand still for too long and I gather a little crowd gathers, and then it gets silly. Yeah. But I find if I keep moving, it's okay. Do you you find it uh,
2: interesting or unusual that Garth Brooks and Alan Jackson sing your songs?
1: Not really. I think a lot of the the new country Western artists have brought a lot of pop music into their work and a lot of rock and roll into their work. You can hear it. You can see it when they're performing. There's a whole new kind of energy that country music has because uh, it's had an infusion of, of, of rock and rock and roll. I think some of the best singers are actually in country music. And, you know, at Soundcheck, we'll mess around doing country songs. Although, obviously, we're from New York, so the hell are we kidding? (laughs) But it's fun to do. uh, You know, I don't see why things can't hybrid like that.
2: And you were on the first uh, Letterman show on CBS. What was the atmosphere like that night?
1: Oh, it was tense. Number one, take TV and multiply that (laughs) by, you know, X amount of factors. Uh, it, It was very, very tense. There was a battle royale about uh, who was going to play the song, my band or the Paul Schaefer band. At one point, I said, well, what do we do with my band? They said, no, we want the Paul Schaefer band. I said, well, forget it. That wasn't the agreement. And then they said, oh, the song's too long. And they said the same thing all over again. Uh, It's TV. It's fun. Yeah, you got it. Uh, Just two other quick things. I'll let you go. You said you do these seminars. Where do you do them? I do them at colleges, uh, mostly. Uh, Sometimes we've done them at public venues. But for the most part, We try to build in a core audience of students, students of composition, students of music, students of the music business, students of piano. I've done them at UCLA. I did one at Princeton about a week ago. Are they impromptu, or are they scheduled way in advance? No, they're scheduled. It's called Words on Music, and it's an evening of questions and answers, and once in a while I'll throw in a song if, if someone requests it. There's an answer that I can, I can illustrate specifically by playing the piano and singing something. Uh, I've done it at King's College in London. I've done it in Italy. have done it in Germany. I've done it in Australia. I did one at Dartmouth, School for the Performing Arts, NYU, Berklee School of Music. So in a lot of places,
2: finally, the last thing I, for another story I'm working on, I'm asking everybody an interview that if, um, if rock and roll were like the stock market and you could invest in some up-and-coming young group, Who
1: have you heard that you like that you think we will be hearing of in the near future? Well, you know, there's so many bands out now that I like that I don't know the name of. I don't know what to tell you. If it was my job to sign up the bands, I'd know who they were. But I'm mostly getting what I hear from radio. And a lot of times they don't say the name. I'll just catch a piece of something. I'm very hopeful uh, about a lot of the new music. I think it's great that These bands are coming out of grassroots situations. They're not manufactured by MTV. They may not have the big super record company push behind them, that a lot of it is independent labels, that they're actually coming from a a club atmosphere where they play and they gather a following who likes their stuff, and they get good because they play together for some reason. This is what I come out of, band. People are rediscovering bands. They want their own bands, too. They want things that they've discovered, not that have been shoved down their throat by a huge marketing campaign. Although ultimately, that's going to happen with any band as soon as Red Company signs them. That's big enough. I like that. I, I relate to the band thing. I always play as a band guy. I was always in bands. People think of me as this piano man, but I only did that for six months. Uh, all the other time, I was in bands. So, have you heard a song lately or something that uh, knocked you out that you've been that you don't know who it was? I like. I'm a creep. I like that a lot. I thought that was a good a a, a good idea. What else? I guess there's a lot of good stuff. I don't even know the name of it. I'm not somebody who's going to run right out and try to pinpoint the record anymore. I, I just think that the, the whole movement that's going on right now is good. Although alternative, no, it's not alternative anymore. No. <laughs> and, sure it. and the whole idea of alternative or these, these bands as outlaws is kind of silly to me because, let's face it, you got a better shot right now at making money being in a hit, you know, in, in a hot band than you do with a college. Diploma. So like what's what's with the James Dean post? Come on, guys. Rock and roll is over thirty years old now. Let's 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 kind of give up on the outlaw bit.
2: Is there anything else you want me to tell people about you or or anything about the show or the album that we haven't talked about? i c I'm pretty Billy Joled out. I can't say anything <laughs> else, like, else to say about the guy. <laughs> uh well you've been really generous with your time. I appreciate yeah, it and uh, looking forward to seeing the show as always. Okay, Mark. All right, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye,
0: bye bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.